Thank you for checking out our sermon here at New Grace. We are excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. It is our prayer that it is a blessing to you. We just want to make you aware of a couple things before we get to the message. First, we would love to connect with you. You can find us on Facebook at New Grace BC. Also, be sure to check out our website, reachingroanoke.com. There, you can find out more about who we are and where we are going as a church. Again, thank you for checking out our sermon here at New Grace. Please let us know of any questions you may have or any way that we can help you and your family. Enjoy the message. When we began going through the book of Ephesians several weeks ago, we looked at the definition of an identity crisis. And we said, in a, an ident- are you doing that? You didn't do that. All right, that was me. An identity crisis is a period of understanding and confusion in which a person's sense of identity becomes insecure. And unfortunately, that's a characteristic of the society that we live in today. Our culture is very insecure about who they are and where they stand with people. And we see it in all types of ways, of course. We see it where uh, now they're saying that people are even insecure about the gender that they're uh, born with or they're gender fluid and they can feel like a woman one day and feel like a man the next day. And uh, they're just very insecure about who they are or what they believe or even what they are. But even more than that, we, we see it especially in our, in our social media culture. Uh, we, we look at people on social media and we, we don't understand, but the things that people put on Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat and YouTube, they're the best of their life. And it's usually not even what their life is really like. They are putting forth an idea that they want you to believe how their life is. And we look at these things and we look at how they project their life. And we look at our life and it's not what we want it to be. It's not what theirs appears to be. So we become very insecure about who we are. But sadly, that's not true just in our culture. It's also true with many Christians in our churches. Many believers, many Christians are living their lives not knowing who they are in Christ. They don't understand who God says they are. They know that Jesus came. They know Jesus lived a perfect life. He died a substitutionary death in their place. He shed his blood on the cross, was buried, and rose again to reconcile them to God the Father. They know that through the gospel they have have been redeemed, that their, their sins have been forgiven, and they have eternity in heaven. They know that all those things make them right with God. They know that one day Jesus is coming back to bring them up to heaven, and he's going to come back, and the trump of God will sound, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then those that remain will be caught up in the air to join them in the clouds and we will forever be with the Lord. They know that. So they know the beginning. They know the end. But they believe that the middle is kind of left up to them. Jesus saved us. Jesus is coming back for us. And how we get between those two spots is a very insecure time in our lives. Because we look at our lives and we don't understand who God says we are. We see ourselves as we see ourselves. We see ourselves as sinners, as unworthy, as undeserving. We know our struggles, and so we define ourselves 
by our struggles and we don't truly understand what God says about us. And God wants more for us than that type of life. God didn't send his son to live a perfect life, die on the cross, and rise again just to give us salvation. God did that, yes, to save us, yes, to pay our sin debt. But he did that because he desired a relationship with us. He desires fellowship with us. He didn't save us and leave us to our own and say, well, I'll I'll see you, I'll spend time with you when you die and get to heaven. God wants to be with us now. God loves us incredibly. And and Paul is teaching in Ephesians chapter 1 that the more that we know who God is, the more we understand who we are in him, the more security we have the more confidence we have in who God says we are. And that's what he's teaching through Ephesians chapter 1. And we've told you that in this chapter from verse 3 to verse 14, it is the longest sentence in the Greek New Testament. And this sentence is filled with incredible truths that Paul says we are in Christ. And through these last couple of weeks, we've seen an identity statement. And here's the identity statement. In Christ, I am a loved, accepted child of the Father, and who I am is who I am in Him. You are not defined by your past. You are not defined by your present. You are not defined by your future. You are defined by who God says you are. And you are who God says you are. We are, when we were born, every one of us, we were born in this world in Adam. We were born enemies to God, alienated from God, separated from God. But when we accepted the gospel, we accepted his birth, death, burial, and resurrection as total and complete and final payment for our sins, we were reborn in Christ. We were reconciled to God. We are loved by God. We are accepted by God. We are a child of God. And we've seen a lot of truths about who God says we are in Christ in this chapter. We've seen that Paul says we are chosen. Long before the creation of the world, long before God ever said, let there be anything, Long before you were even a glimmer in your parents' eye, God chose you. He set his heart on you and he chose you to be born again. Now, that doesn't take away our free will. We've just talked about this. You know, people, there's a big debate in Christianity between Calvinism and, and, and all these other things about, well, God's chosen us, and since God's chosen us and we're predestinated, then we don't have to do anything because God's chosen us for salvation. And the fact is, yes, God has chosen you for salvation, but God chose everybody for salvation. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So when I say God chose you, God chose you and God chose the people who die and go to hell too. But they exercised their free will to reject his free gift. So yes, he chose you for salvation. And so who I am in Christ, what that means is who I am, these things God says about me, 
They have nothing to do with me. I didn't do anything to earn them. I didn't do anything to deserve them. I didn't do anything to keep them. God chose to give, give these things to me. Not only are chosen, but we are adopted. This, this, this talks about the love of God. To be adopted means that you are part of a family that you don't belong to by blood. And so God bought us into his family. God brought us into a relationship with him and fellowship with him so we could enjoy a father-son relationship, but we weren't part of his family. We were enemies of God, but he adopted us into his family. Then we saw that we were loved. The Bible says that we are so loved that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Not even me. I can't separate myself from the love of God. You can't separate yourself from the love of God. We cannot, we can't work our way out of God's love because we didn't work our way in. We didn't earn it, so we can't lose it. We are loved by God. We also saw that we are accepted. God is pleased with you because God is pleased with Jesus. And we are in him. We are in Christ, and since we are in Christ, we are accepted by God because of Christ. Not only that, but we are favored. That means we are always in a position of God's gracious favor. And sometimes we forget about that when we're going through a tough time. When we have hardships, we have difficulties, we have problems we're facing, we we tend to think, well, God's not putting his gracious favor on me, but he really is. If you look at your life, every one of us have God's gracious favor on our life. This morning, I went to get some gas in April's car, (coughs) and I drove to the gas station and got out and was pumping gas and got back in and started the car because it was cold. And I don't want to be cold, so I'm in the car, and I start smelling something. I start smelling plastic burning. I'm like, what is that? I look at the thermostat, and it's not, not too hot. I'm like, is something in you know, the belt burning or whatever? And I'm like, what, what is that coming from? And I look at my door, and the driver's side door is smoking. And I thought, that's not good. And so I, I tried to see what was going on, and I couldn't really see anything, and it kept getting thicker and thicker. So I turned the, the van off, opened the door, and that killed all the power, and eventually it stopped smoking. And I thought, maybe I, I shouldn't fill the car up because it's just going to be a bigger boom when it booms. And so I, I, after it filled up, I sat there and looked at it for a while. I couldn't find anything, so I drove back home, and I sat in the driveway for a while to see if it would catch on fire again, and it didn't. And I pulled the, one of the, the, I think it was one of the uh, window switches, so I pulled that window switch and unplugged it just to be safe and told April that I was kind of frustrated because, man, my, my truck, you know, I've got a 99 Explorer, and I have never had a day of trouble with that thing. April keeps saying, you need to get a new car. I'm like, why? I love that thing. I've never had any major problems with it. It's never, it's always does good. Yeah, it ticks, but you know, it's a Ford. It's supposed to tick. And so it just does what it's supposed to do, but it goes. And here we have her newer car. And I am constantly dealing with issues with this stupid car. 
went to, used to go through about three pads of brakes a year until I finally found, and I changed the, rot- the uh, 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 caliber several times, and I finally got a decent pair that, that finally lasted. It's always out of alignment. I have to get aligned all the time. She drives it like a tank, so that's one thing. She thinks it's, you know, a, a bumper car, and that's why the bumper is falling off because of April. And so there's a lot of issues. I've had problems with the alternator, with the battery. I've, got, I've put four brand-new batteries in that car in the last three months. Yes! I hate that car! It's not the alternator. Alternator works fine. You know what it was? Well, it's probably the light switch. It was, a, it was the car charger. We leave the phone charger in, and the phone charger drained the battery. So now I unplug the phone charger, it doesn't do it. But I'm like, I'm like man, I hate this car. I want to get rid of this stupid thing. I'm like, I got gap insurance. If it snows today, I'm going speeding. We're going to deal with this. And I got very frustrated, but then I thought, you know what, Lord, no. Because I, I ha- we have a car that works. Sure, it's kind of frustrating. Sure, it smokes, apparently. But, you know, it may catch on fire one day. But we have a car. It's warm in the winter. It's cool in the summer. It gets us from point A to point B most of the time. If it decides to start and someone didn't leave the phone charger plugged in. But it's easy to get frustrated with what you don't have or the problems you have. But we've got to look at our life and say, God... No matter what I'm going through, I am greatly favored by God. I'm healthy. I live in a free country for now where I can freely come to church and worship God. God's given me a wonderful family, a wonderful home. And so it's easy to say, oh, i got all these problems, but we need to understand we are greatly favored by God. Not only that, we are redeemed. We have been purchased from the slavery of sin. The blood of Jesus has set us free. We are no longer sinners, but we are free from the burden and the bondage of sin. Not only are we redeemed, we are forgiven. All the guilt of every sin you ever did commit, every sin you committed today and are probably committing right now, And every sin you're going to commit has been removed in Christ. You are forgiven for all of your sins. Now, again, this is a give you... We're going to see, remember, chapter 3 is coming, where Paul gets kind of harsh and says, Hey, God loves you, now live right. But we are forgiven for our sins. The guilt of our sin is removed. The punishment of our sin is removed. Not only are we forgiven, but we have been given God's perspective. We have wisdom from God to grow in the understanding of who we are in him. And all these are realities that Paul refers to when he says we have already been blessed by every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. That means all these things, they're not what we're hoping to be. They're not what we're striving to be. They're not what we one day will be. They are who we are today. Today, I am chosen. Today, I am accepted. Today, I am favored. Today, I am redeemed. Today, I am forgiven. Today, I am loved. This is who I am in Christ today. But that's not all we are in Christ Jesus. Paul continues through Ephesians 1. But it's not just in Ephesians. This book, the Bible, is filled with powerful truth that God says about you and who God says you are 
in him. And the more we pursue him, the more we know him, the more we walk with him and read his word and talk with him, the more we know who we are in him. And the more we understand who we are in him, the more it changes how we live for him. Because we're not living for God because we have to earn these things. We live for God because he already gave us these things. And so understanding who we are and how God has blessed us changes how we live for him. Let's continue in Ephesians chapter 1 this morning. So look at Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to start reading verse number 11. (coughs) Bible says, In whom we also have obtained an inheritance. Now when he says in whom, who's he talking about? All right. We talked about this Wednesday. When I ask a question, I like an answer. In whom, who's he talking about? Jesus. In Christ. It's not like, now in whom do we have? No, no, no. He's saying in Christ. In him. In him or in, in whom or in him, we also we have obtained an inheritance. Being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will that we should be the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. In whom, or again, in him, he also trusted. After that, ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. So in these verses here, we see two more realities about who we are in him. And here's the first one. We are heirs. That's great news. We are heirs. Paul, matter of fact, that's so so powerful. Paul uses that phrase twice in verse number 11. He says, in whom we have obtained an inheritance. And in verse 14, he says, the Holy Spirit is the earnest of our inheritance. Now the word inheritance in the English, it means to come into possession of that which belongs to someone else by the right of your relationship with them. Now, you can come into the possession of something that belongs to someone else not based on your relationship. You can break in their house and steal it. I came into possession of this TV not because I knew those people because they weren't home and I kept broke in. That's that's stealing, but inheritance is because You have a relationship with someone. You have established a relationship with someone. And because of your relationship, you possess something that you didn't buy, you didn't deserve, you didn't earn. But because of your relationship with someone else, you receive this item. Spiritually, we have a relationship with God in Christ. Now, because of that... Because of our relationship with God in Christ, we have come into possession of something that didn't belong to us, but because of that relationship, we have a right to it. Paul talks about this inheritance in Romans 8, verse 15. He says, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. Now again, he's talking about our identity. Too many people live in the spirit of fear. Even in Christ, 
they struggle with this spirit of fear. They believe that God has invited them not into a relationship of a father, son, or a child, but God has invited them into a relationship of religious slavery and fear to God. God saved me, but now I have to obey him to keep him happy. God saved me, but now I have to live for him to, to make sure he's happy. I have to accomplish his mission to make sure he stays happy. I have to, have to do everything I can to keep God happy. Yes, he saved me, but man, i got to keep him happy. Paul's saying, God didn't invite you into a, spirit, a, a relationship of slavery and fear. A spirit of slavery leads to fear. And Paul says that's not what we have. He says, again, for we have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. So Paul says here that we have the spirit of adoption, which means we are children of God with Jesus. We are heirs of God with Jesus. Now, when you think of heaven and inheritance, a couple questions come to mind. Number one, it matters who you are the heir of. My children are my heir. And they're out of luck. I got nothing to leave them. So, you know, if I live long enough, they'll get a house. But that's about it. So they're not, you know, they're not receiving a whole lot. So it matters who you're the heir of. If you're the heir of, of someone who doesn't have anything, well, what's the point of being their heir? So we're not heirs of some human person. We are the heirs of God. We are heirs. Psalms 24, 1 says this, says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So if you're the heir of mine, you're out of luck because I got nothing. But you're not the heir of mine. You're the heir of God. And God has everything. The earth is the Lord's. And the fullness thereof. So it not only matters who you are the heir of, but it also matters what portion of the inheritance you get. So you can be the heir of, of uh, Bezos, Jeff Bezos. The, well, he's now the third richest man in the, in the world because he got a divorce and now his wife's the richest woman in the world. But, you know, he's one of the wealthiest men in the world. You can be the heir of Jeff Bezos, but if he just leaves you a toothbrush, what good does that do you? So it matters who you are the heir of, and it matters what portion of the inheritance you get. So, right, we are heirs with, of God with Jesus. What do we get? What portion of the inheritance did God give us? The Bible says that we are joint heirs with Christ. That means we share in the inheritance. We get the exact same portion that Jesus gets. And what does Jesus get? Jesus gets it all. So that means as joint heirs of God with Jesus, what Jesus has access to, we have access to. Everything that belongs to Christ belongs to me. His riches are my riches. His resources are my resources. His power is my power. His privilege is my privilege. His position is my position. Everything that belongs to him belongs to me in Christ. Here's what John MacArthur said. <clears throat> he said, in Christ, in Jesus Christ, believers 
inherit every promise that God has ever made. That right there is incredible. We inherit every promise God ever made. Our every conceivable need is met by God's gracious provision in accordance with his divine promises. We are promised peace, love, grace, wisdom, eternal life, joy, victory, strength, guidance, power, mercy, forgiveness, righteousness, truth, fellowship with God, spiritual discernment, heaven, eternal riches, glories, those and every other good thing that comes from God. Because we have been made joint heirs with Christ, we are a guaranteed a possession of everything he possesses. That is who we are in Christ. We are heirs of God. And this inheritance is ours. Paul says in verse number 11, he says, and look again in Ephesians 1.11, in whom we also have obtained. That, that word phrase there, have obtained, is one Greek word, and it's in the aorist tense. Tense is very important in, in, in Greek. The aorist tense speaks of an action that is already completed. Paul is saying, if you're in Christ, you already have that inheritance. It's, it's not something you're, you're striving for. It's not something that you're working towards. It's something that you already have. We don't hope to get an inheritance one day. We already have the inheritance today. First Peter 1 says this, said, Blessed be the God of our Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again into a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fades not away, reserved for you in heaven. Reserved there means God has set it aside and you have access to it whenever you need it. It's being watched over and guarded for us. So whenever we need it, it is there for us. It is ready for us because it is ours. It is ours by God's sovereign grace. But not only is the aorist tense, not only is have obtained in the aorist tense, it's also in the active verb, in the active voice. So that means that the subject is the one receiving the action. We have obtained, but we did nothing to obtain it. We didn't earn it. It was something that God freely gave to us. All we did was receive the inheritance by God's grace. And it is his, it is ours, by God's sovereign grace, but it's not for us, it's for his glory. Look at verse 12. <clears throat> verse 11, we got this inheritance, it's ours, it's ready for the taking, it's already given to us, that we should be the praise of his glory. The word that there means here's the reason, here's the purpose. Paul says God's given you inheritance. He's made you a joint heir with Jesus. It is freely given to you. It is ready for you. And the reason that he did it was for his glory. Was for his praise and his glory. From now through eternity, our lives are to bring praise and glory to God. He didn't give this inheritance for our glory for us to go around saying, I own everything Jesus owns. It's all mine. 
He gave it to us so we could bring honor and praise and glory to him. We have an inheritance, but it's for his glory. Here's another thing that we are. Not only are we heirs, we are sealed. We are sealed. Look at verse number 13. In whom, again in him, talk about Jesus. In whom or in him ye also trusted. After that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. In whom also after ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Sealed here, it describes the finished work of God in our lives that we received through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God in us. So here's, and sometimes it can get confusing, and people ask me, well, how is that possible? Because he's God and we're not. But when you were saved, when you accepted Christ as your Savior, you were placed in Christ. We saw that all throughout Scripture. When you are saved, you are placed in Christ. But when you accepted Christ as your Savior, you are in Christ, but Christ is also in you through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. See, we, we have this, this tendency to kind of delegate the Trinity. It's like it's God the Father, and God the Son, and then the, list, the, you know, the least powerful one is God the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is as much God as God is. The Holy Spirit is as much Jesus as Jesus is. So when you accept Christ as your Savior, you were placed in Christ, but Christ was also placed in you. And so his Holy Spirit indwells us, and we are sealed through his Holy Spirit indwelling. But what does that mean? This, Hebrew, this Greek word sealed is used four different ways in the New Testament. So how is it used? Well, first way, a seal is a sign of a finished transaction. When me and April had our children, we went to the hospital. With Parker, we were there for a couple days. With Connor, we were there for about 10 hours. With Lexi, we were there for about five minutes. But every time we went to the hospital, we went into the, the, the birthing room or the mother-baby room, or in Lexi's case, the hallway, and the baby was born. After the baby was born, they, you know, of course, cleaned it up, snipped the umbilical cord, scrubbed it real clean real quick, gave it back to us. And after the baby was born, we received the birth certificate. And the birth certificate had the seal of the county, the clerk of office of whatever county we were in. Parker, of course, is our only southern baby. Lexi and Connor are both Yankees. You can tell that. But every one of them... Their birth certificate has a seal from the county seat. Now, they didn't give us that sealed document until the baby was born. When we walked in the hospital, they didn't say, well, here's, the, here's their certificate, the sealed certificate of the baby you're going to have. No, no, no. We had to wait until the baby was born. It had to be a finished transaction before we got that seal. And so the seal, God uses in Romans chapter 15, verse 28, says, when therefore... I have performed this, talking about salvation, I have sealed them to this fruit, I will come to you to buy you to Spain. So Paul is describing something he is doing, and he's saying, when I'm done, I will put my seal on it that it is finished. And so God says you are sealed because once you've accepted Christ as your Savior, it is a finished transaction. To be sealed means a transaction for salvation has been done. That's what Jesus meant when he hung on the cross and said, it is finished. 
He said, all the work for your salvation is done. So when you were saved, you were sealed by the Holy Spirit, showing God and everything else, the transaction, the work for your salvation is done. There's nothing more for you to do except accept the, the, the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection as payment for your sin. So it's a sign of a finished transaction. It's also a, a seal is a sign of authenticity. How many of y'all have ever seen that show on History Channel, Pawn Stars? They bring, you know, this, this pawn shop in Vegas, and look, it's all, it's all staged, let's be honest. They, they handpick the people they want to have. But when they, people bring in the sports memorabilia, and it's signed by these sports stars, if the pawn shop is going to buy it, they have to have a certificate of authenticity. It's a seal that says this item, whether it's a picture or a baseball or a football or a glove or some weird stuff they sign, whatever it is, this seal authenticates that the person who they say signed it, signed it. So John chapter 6 verse 27 says this, says, labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for the meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath the Father sealed. Who did God seal? He sealed Jesus. When did he seal Jesus? At his baptism. Remember the story? Jesus comes down to the Jordan. John says, I should be baptized with you. Behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. He takes Jesus into the Jordan River. He baptizes him. When he comes up, what happens? Voice from heaven says, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. God said, when he was baptized, I authenticated that he was my son. He put a seal of authenticity on Jesus and who he was. And when we put our trust in Jesus, the Holy Spirit seals you as an authentic child of God. That's why Paul said in Romans 8, 16, the Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. See, because we, our spirit can doubt our salvation. We do it all the time. How can I be saved if I did this? How can I be saved? And God says, the Holy Spirit inside of you tells your spirit, yep, you're a child of God. You're saved. You are an authentic child of the Father. Not only is it a seal of authenticity, it's a seal of ownership. It's like the title of your car. <clears throat> you know, I have the title to my, to my cars, and I have a title because I own them. They're mine. I have that document from the DMV, and it's got a seal on it saying this person owns that car. I don't have that to my house yet because the bank owns most of it. But one day when I pay off my house, I'll get that deed, and it'll say this house belongs to this person. How do we see that in the Scriptures? We see it in 2 Timothy chapter 2. He says, Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are His. Paul, Timothy, Paul tells Timothy, he says, look, God sealed you because God knows who belongs to him. God knows who are his children. The fact that the Spirit of God lives inside of us means we belong to God. We are his. It's like in the movie Toy Story. Andy wrote Andy on the bottom of Woody's foot. You got God written on the bottom of your feet. You belong to God. You are his. Why is that important? Well, that's important because in Revelation 5, the Bible says this. It 
says, and they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by the blood of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and has made, us our, has made unto us our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. God set his heart on us. He sent, he's purchased redemption through his death, burial, and resurrection, and he gave us his spirit, and that says we belong to God. And when he comes again, we will rule and reign with him. Why? Because we are his. We belong to God. But the fourth thing, a seal is a sign of security. When you have a baby and you start buying baby food, you take the baby food home and it's sealed and you know it's sealed because when you twist the top, what's it do? It pops. If you don't hear the pop, do you feed it to your baby? No, because it's been tampered with. Now, maybe it's got cyanide in it. Maybe someone just opened it up and, you know, because people are weird. You know, this summer they were licking ice cream and putting it back. Maybe someone opened it and licked it and put I don't know. But you ain't sure about that baby food. So if you don't hear that pop, you know, this isn't good stuff. This isn't secure. And the Holy Spirit of God is a seal of security on us. As long as that steel seal on the baby food jar stays intact, everything inside is secure. It is sealed. We see this in Matthew 27. So they went and made the sepulcher sure, sealing the stone and setting the watch. They sealed the stone to protect what was inside. Now what was inside? Well, Jesus was. They weren't trying to protect Jesus. They were trying to make sure no one stole him. But they sealed the sepulcher for security on the inside. So the seal of the Holy Spirit of God speaks to the eternal security of our relationship. Now, I know what you're saying, but preacher, you can open a baby food jar and unseal it. And obviously, Jesus came through that seal, so our seal is really that secure. Look at John 10. And I will give unto them eternal life. And they shall, how, when will they perish? Never perish. Neither shall who? Any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them to me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. So when we were saved at salvation, we are placed in Christ, and Christ lives inside of us. But we're not just in Christ with Christ in us. We are in the hand of God. We, the security doesn't rest in my ability to hold on to Jesus. It rests in God's ability to hold on to me. And we are in Christ. He is holding us, and the Father is holding us. And Jesus says that no man, not even you, can pluck them out of my hand. Jesus took the security of our relationship and elevated it to the security of his relationship with the Father. So my security with the Father in Christ is as secure as Christ's security with God himself. And we can't, we can't get any more sealed than that. We can't get any more secure than that. But when were he sealed? Look at verse 13 in Ephesians 1 again. In whom, in whom he also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, in whom also after ye believed, ye were sealed. 
So when were we sealed? After we heard and after we believed. We had to hear the gospel. The word heard there in the Greek means to hear with understanding. It's more than just hearing something. You know, our kids, <coughs> of course, they're doing, uh, in school, they're getting up there, Parker especially, now even Connor. They're starting to do, they're, they're, they're doing new math. Do you know they changed math? Why, why does math change? You know, they come to me with algebra problems. They're like, well, I can't understand. And it's like, oh, well, here's how you do it. I'm showing them how, to, how I learned to do it. And they're like, no, 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 that's not how we do it anymore. I'm like, but it worked for 50 years. Why do we change it now? And so, I mean, I've literally, I've had to, I've had to YouTube how to do this stuff. And I see how they explain to do it. And I'm like, this is stupid. This is harder than I ever had to do it. So I tell them, don't do it that way. Do it my way. It's much easier. Well, let's be honest. You have a calculator with you all the time. It's not that important. But I, I've listened the other day, Connor, he's, he's starting to learn about, about square roots. How many of y'all ever used a square root in your life? Why do we have them? But he's trying to learn about square roots. So I, I went to Google and what is the square root? And I read the whole thing. But I didn't understand it. I read it twice. I had it read to me by Siri. And I thought, I heard it, but I don't understand it. So he's like, what's a square root? I said, I don't know. Use your calculator. I can't help you, son. So I heard it, but I didn't understand it. So it's not just hearing the gospel. It's hearing and understanding the gospel. Understanding what? Understanding that we were sinners. Destined and deserving of hell. Understanding that God loved us so much that he left heaven, came to earth, wrapped himself in humanity, lived a perfect, sinless life, died on the cross, a death that we should have died, was buried in the grave, rose again three days later to reconcile us and redeem us to God the Father. When we heard that and understood that and believed that, we were sealed. Believe there means to trust in, to surrender to, to put your faith in. You have to understand that you are a sinner, but God loves you anyway. And he died for you anyway. And he rose for you anyway. And when you put your faith in that, you are sealed by the Holy Spirit. You are an authentic child of God. You belong to him and you are secure in him. But not only that, but all that we have seen in Ephesians is true about you now. Right this moment, you are chosen. You are adopted. You are loved. You are accepted. You are favored. You are redeemed. You are forgiven. You are an heir. And you are sealed by God. That's not who you hope to be. That's not who you're working to be. That's, if you're a child of God, that's who you are right now in Jesus because of his love for you. That's who you are.